Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker tonight is a Catholic historian specializing in the classical and medieval periods. He completed his master's degree and is soon to complete his doctoral degree in medieval history from St. Louis University. He has taught both history and classical languages at the undergraduate level, and he is currently a professor of history at Christendom College, his alma mater, where, by the way, he is the only person ever to have graduated with a 4.0. Please welcome Brendan McGuire. <laughs> Thank you. Can you guys hear me? A little bit? Okay. Um, now, that, that last point, I don't know if that's technically true, Sabatina, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think there have been two, actually, in recent years, two students have graduated from Christendom with a 4.0, so, yeah. <laughs> oh. Now, Sabat Sabatino has the distinction of being the only person to graduate from Christendom and found an institute of Catholic culture, so let's give Sabatino a round of applause. <laughs> so... Today and next Tuesday, our subject is, of course, Constantine the Great, or as the Byzantines like to call him, Saint Constantine the Great. And we'll get into that next week. The, the, the way I'd like to approach the subject of Constantine, because it, it's really a massive subject, right? There's so much that we could talk about when we're talking about a figure like Constantine, a figure of macro-historical importance. So the way I would like to approach it is to divide it systematically and to talk tonight about the political significance of Constantine's reign within the history of the late antique Roman Empire, and then a week from today to talk about the significance of Constantine as a religious leader and as a figure within the church. Both are subjects in, in which, of course, much, much deep study has been done. Uh, but first of all, to, to contemplate and to appreciate Constantine's achievements as a political leader and the significance of Constantine as an emperor, we have to step back and come to appreciate the accomplishments of a man that most of you were probably raised to view as a villain. Of course, who am I thinking of? Who's the man most of you raised to think of him as an absolute villain? And yet we have to, we have to appreciate his accomplishments tonight. Diocletian. All right, you all know Diocletian. Diocletian is famous for being the great persecutor. And indeed, Diocletian certainly did initiate a systematic persecution of Christianity within his domains. Uh, his reputation in that respect is largely true. But he was also a man of tremendous talent, uh, particularly for statecraft. And in fact, if it were not for Diocletian's talent for statecraft, Christianity would never have triumphed within the Roman Empire. 
Right. So before we can even contemplate the triumph of Christianity under Constantine, we have to appreciate the, the accomplishments of Diocletian. Now, let's look at it this way. Diocletian rises to prominence in the Roman Empire in the late 3rd century, at a time when the empire was emerging from a profound crisis. Let's look at it this way. Uh, for about a 50-year period, from 235 to 284, uh, there's a, a period in Roman history that we call the 3rd century crisis. Third century crisis. Now, we call it the third century crisis because it was a crisis and it was in the third century. Um, so it's one of the easiest things to remember. But what kind of a crisis was this? Well, it was a crisis on virtually every level in Roman life. It was a political crisis. It was a social crisis. It was a fiscal and economic crisis. It was a crisis that involved foreign invasion, civil war, uh, the collapse of culture. This was a, a crisis that affected virtually every facet of Roman life. So we have to come to understand, really, the gravity of this crisis before we can have any context for understanding the rise of, of Diocletian and Constantine. Uh, first of all, how do, we, how do we summarize the third century crisis? Well, it's very simple. In less than 50 years... The Roman Empire had somewhere between 20 and 25 emperors in this period, virtually none of whom died a natural death. Right? Now, why do I say between 20 and 25? Why don't we have an exact number? Well, it's, it's because it's kind of hard to tell which ones should count and which ones shouldn't. Uh, this is a period in which virtually every emperor was assassinated by his successor. Right? Uh, so this is, this is, of course, more than just a political crisis, though. More, much more than just a political crisis. Uh, this, the vulnerability of emperors to assassination in the third century crisis, it creates a variety of other problems. Right? In the first place, we can look at the fiscal problems that it creates. Uh, it was customary upon acceding to the throne of the Roman Empire, it was customary to give a generous donative to the army and to the civil service. Uh, this was called an accessional donative. Uh, and it, it required you know, a, a serious drain on the treasury. A new emperor would also face a, a variety of other things that required his attention, you know, fiscally, uh, to a certain extent. The military required almost constant attention. Uh, the civil service in the third century was funded on a, a piecemeal and haphazard basis. The administration of provinces was done very inefficiently and uh, really not, not effectively at all. And so immediately upon acceding to the throne, an emperor would be faced with a situation where he had to empty his treasury to deal with immediate problems. Now, when you have 20 or 25 emperors succeeding one another in a 50-year period, the treasury is empty, right? And a new emperor comes, comes to the throne with an empty treasury. What does he do? Well, he has immediate demands on the fisc of the empire. And so what he does is he mints more coins. Right? It's really convenient. You mint more coins and you get more money. It's, <laughs> it's great. Now, how do they do that? Well, most, most Roman coins in the period were, were silver, right? You have silver coins. So you think, ah, oh, well, if the money's silver, well, then it must have a, a steady value, right? A stable value? Because it's silver. Silver has a stable value, doesn't it? Uh, not if you keep mixing it with other stuff. Then it doesn't. Now, the, the Romans knew this. They knew that debasing the coinage would create fluctuations in the value of the currency. Uh, but what they didn't understand was why. The Romans, it doesn't seem in late antiquity that they understood that it was the scarcity of money that made it valuable. Right? That's a basic principle which seems to have been missed. Uh, so you see emperor after emperor in the third century crisis uh, figuring that if he debases the coinage by a certain calculated amount, 
he can thereby stabilize its value at a certain level and meet all of the fiscal demands that he faces and, and then move on. And it doesn't happen. By the time you get to the 260s, 270s, 280s, uh, the value of Roman coins is roughly equal to the value of Zimbabwean dollars. Uh, you know, uh, slightly, slightly less valuable than monopoly money. Right. This creates all kinds of problems. I mean, think about it. What was money used for in the Roman Empire? It, it wasn't... It wasn't used for, for every kind of economic transaction. They didn't have a fully monetarized economy the way that we do. But it was used primarily for paying the army and for paying the civil service. Right? And so when you have money that becomes worthless due to hyperinflation, you can no longer pay the army. Then you have an army that's uncooperative and what doesn't defend the borders as effectively, doesn't suppress rebels as effectively. Right? So all of a sudden you have invaders and rebels that you can't deal with. Right? And when you can't pay the civil service, the machinery of government grinds to a halt. And so by the time we get deep into the third century crisis, we're looking at an empire that's on the verge of collapse in every conceivable way. Right? Foreign invaders run rampant within the empire. The empire uh, seems to fragment into three or four or five chunks at any given time. Uh, you have, w w with the obsolescence of the civil service, you have an obsolescence of the education system which means a decline in literacy and culture and, and that sort of thing. So it's, it's a profound and grave crisis, and no solution appears immediately on the horizon. Right? It looks like the Roman Empire is just simply going to disintegrate in the third century crisis. And of course, if the Roman Empire had disintegrated at that point, the rise of Christianity as we know it never could have happened. Right? The rise of a Christian civilization, a Christian culture in the Mediterranean would have been a pipe dream if it weren't for the unifying force created by the Roman Empire. So, so the, the collapse of the Roman Empire here is something that nobody wants to happen. Now, the man who saved the Roman Empire from this crisis was, of course, Diocletian. Diocletian became emperor in 284. His reign was from 284 to 305. Now, the, the great historian A.H.M. Jones says that Diocletian's greatest accomplishment as a ruler was that he reigned for 21 years without getting assassinated. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's no understatement. It, it was quite an accomplishment. Not only did he reign for 21 years without getting assassinated, he also knew how to retire gracefully. Uh, unlike Brett Favre, like he, he knew actually how to <laughs> go out on his own terms when he had the chance and all of that. So uh, he actually, in 305, he retired and, and went to dedicate himself to gardening and leisurely pursuits uh, on his farm on the Dalmatian coast. Right? So who is this guy Diocletian and how does he rise to power? Well, it's interesting. In Diocletian's rise to power, we see no indication that he's going to be any different than any, than any of his predecessors. Diocletian's rise to power occurs by exactly the kind of mechanisms that dominated imperial succession during the third century crisis. Uh, he was an army officer. He was an army officer from Illyricum, from the Balkans, that is to say from a region of the empire where Latin and Greek culture tended to mix and blend. Uh, we know that Diocletian had a Greek name originally. His name was Diocles. Now, I don't know if there are any Greek scholars here, but Diocles if it rings a bell with you, it, it means the glory of Zeus. Dios is the, the genitive form of, of the word for Zeus, and Kles means glory. So Diocles, the glory of Zeus. This was a name that Diocletian took seriously, despite his humble origins. Uh, in fact, later on, after becoming emperor, he would call himself Jovius, or under the patronage of, of Zeus, Jupiter, the king of the gods. But in any event, Diocles, uh, um, a simple career army officer, and when I say of humble origins, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. His father may have been a, a freed slave 
it appears. His father was a scribe, and most scribes in the Roman Empire were, in fact, slaves. So Diocletian, uh, he grew up in a region of the empire where Latin and Greek culture tended to blend. We know that he himself spoke both Latin and Greek, was equally at home with the two dominant languages of the late antique empire. Uh, And we know that he uh, was a man who really liked calculations, figures, records, paperwork, the sorts of things that you might expect of the son of a scribe. So he had some of the skills that would be necessary to restore the empire to an even keel. Now Diocletian's opportunity came in 284, when he was with a Roman army that was led by an emperor named Carus. Right? Now, it may surprise you to know that the, the troubles and drama of the third century crisis didn't stop Roman emperors from leading expeditions against the Persians. Right? It didn't stop them at all. In, in fact, to a certain extent, it incentivized leading expeditions against the Persians, despite the expense, because successful military expeditions were really the one key to prestige for these emperors. And you know, I mean, you, you guys know the military. That's what the military wants to be doing, is, is what it does, is fighting. Uh, and so if your source of power is the army, how do you please the army? By leading successful wars. And so even despite all the problems that they had on their plate in the third century crisis, Roman emperors liked leading foreign wars. So the emperor Carus led an expedition against the Persians uh, that set off in 283 and uh, was I mean, like many of these things, not, not really that successful. But Carus, in 283, died mysteriously on this expedition. The, the sources tell us he was struck by lightning. And when they say struck by lightning, they mean assassinated. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty clear what's going on here. So Carus himself was assassinated, and upon his assassination, the empire was inherited by his two sons. Carus had two sons. Their names were Carinus and Numerian. Carinus here was left behind in the west, while Carus and Numerian led the army into Persia. Uh, so the army, upon Carus's death by quote-unquote lightning strike, immediately proclaimed Numerian as his successor, while Carinus, back home in the west, also claimed to be his father's successor. So Numerian's first task was to lead the, this army out of Persia and confront his brother. He never really made it. The army proceeded very slowly out of Persian territory and into the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire. They never made it past Asia Minor. They entered Roman Asia Minor. And uh, it was there that something strange happened. Uh, There was apparently a a Roman officer named Aper. And Aper came forward, and he announced to the army that Numerian was sick. And that because Numerian was sick, he would be, he, that is Numerian, would be traveling in a closed cart for the rest of the way. Right? So you, you have this closed cart rumbling along uh, with Numerian allegedly inside of it, and they keep rumbling along until, until the cart starts to smell. Right? When the cart starts to smell, of course, they go and open it up, and there's Numerian's rotting corpse in there. Uh, but, I mean, look, it, it's obvious, once again, what happened. So Diocles, knowing the, the general atmosphere of the third century crisis, knowing the mood of the army, knowing how these things work, he knows exactly what he has to do if he's going to make his move at this point. He has to act decisively, and so he does. Diocles dragged Aper before the army, assembled everyone, and announced that Aper was the assassin. He then took out his sword and stuck it through Aper right in front of everyone. Right? Guess who's the emperor now? Diocles. Right? Of course, his next task was to confront the other heir, Carinus, which he did. 
successfully in 285, right? So his replacement of, of Numerian and, and his execution of Aper takes place in 284. That becomes the first regnal date for Diocles. Uh, he then goes and defeats Carinus in 285. So as of 285, this figure, Diocles, has asserted control over the entire Roman Empire. Now there's no reason to expect that his rule is going to be any longer or any more successful than that of Carus, Carinus, Numerian, Aper, or any of these other characters, right? It's the third century crisis. This is how we roll, right? There's, there's absolutely no reason to suspect uh, that this guy is going to have a successful or, or long reign at this point. But, as we said, he was a man of rare talents. One of the, thir the first things he did at this point was to actually Latinize his name. Diocles changed his name from, from Diocles, which is the Greek form, to Diocletianus, uh, basically sticking a Latin ending on a Greek name, and that's why we call him Diocletian. Uh, so he adopted a more Roman-sounding name upon becoming emperor. Uh, but we see right away, right, right away at the outset of his reign, a genius for administration on Diocletian's part. In this year, 285, Diocletian made the first of his reforms. This was a, a reform that would be uh, dramatic, long-lasting, have permanent effects, and it would help the beginning of the stabilization process in the Roman Empire. That reform that he made in 285 was to divide the empire. Right? He divided the empire between east and west. Right? Now, in the past, of course, the empire had at times been divided for you know, limited spaces of time. The empire had been divided in emergency situations or, you know, when there was a rebellion here or there or what, what have you. But this is actually different. This is a systematic administrative division between the eastern and western parts of the Roman Empire. And this would be a division that would have lasting effects that would last throughout the remainder of, of Roman history. Um, now, of course, when you divide the empire, what it means is that you're not intending to rule the whole thing yourself. Diocletian has the humility to realize at this point, one man can't solve all the problems of the failing empire here. One man can't restore security, stability, peace, uh, and the machinery of a functioning government in this vast, sprawling empire. All right. So the division between East and West requires the naming of a colleague. And the colleague that he chooses is a fellow named Maximian. Maximian, like Diocletian, was a career army officer from Illyricum, Right? A man who really doesn't come from the aristocratic upper classes of the, the empire's cities. We have to understand, uh, organizations like the Roman Senate right, were very much an urban aristocracy that these soldier emperors wanted to distance themselves from. A guy like Diocletian, a guy like Maximian, really has no patience for the pretensions of the Roman Senate. For example, now, the Roman Senate by the 3rd century was already a marginalized and declining organization. What Diocletian and Maximian want to do with the Senate is reduce it to a gentleman's club. And that's what they do. Right? So he names Maximian as his colleague, and each of them is going to take half the empire. Maximian one half, Diocletian the other. But we have to ask ourselves, which half is Diocletian going to want to take? Diocletian is clearly the senior partner. Right? Which half is he going to want? Most of you are saying west. Some of you are saying east, because you kind of know how this goes. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Diocletian chooses the east, the eastern half of the Roman Empire for himself. That's interesting, isn't it? Diocletian was the senior partner here. If Rome and the West were as important in late antiquity as they had been in classical antiquity, clearly he would have chosen the West. But he doesn't. He chooses the East. Right? 
the eastern half of the empire is going to become the more important half, we'll see, in late antiquity. Clearly, there's been a shift. The eastern half of the empire was wealthier. It was more urbanized. All right? It was more civilized. It was more cultured. The eastern half of the empire was where the, the more important grain-producing regions were. It was more populous, of course, than the western half. And that's where most of the army was. Right? So you're going to want to be the eastern emperor rather than the western emperor in this partnership. The eastern emperor is going to be kind of the senior partner from this point forward. So Diocletian chooses the, the east for himself and gives Maximian the west. Now, that alone isn't going to solve the empire's problems at this point. Remember, the Roman Empire has no budget whatsoever in 285. In fact, the Roman Empire has never had a budget at this point of any kind. Right? Now, that's all, that's all well and good when you can just go rake in money when you need to, right? but you can't do that anymore. The, the value of monetary payments at this point in Roman history is absolutely nugatory. Right? It's absolutely just negligible. So what does Diocletian do? He realizes before we can do anything else, before we can rebuild the army, before we can increase the size and effectiveness of the civil service, before we can restart the machinery of government, before we can do anything that we want to do, reform the provincial system, anything, before we do any of that, we have to have a budget. Right? We have to figure out a way to create reliable streams of income, to assess and collect taxes in a way that will maximize receipts and cut down on inefficiency and corruption. Right? Now, that's hard to do when you can't deal in coins. Right? That's very, very hard to do. When you have to collect bushels of wheat, barrels of wine, herds of pigs, that sort of thing. And yet Diocletian has to resign himself to that. There's still some collection of coins that can occur. There are still some gold and silver coins that are out there that are valuable. But the majority of Roman coinage here is so heavily debased that you can't have the majority of the empire paying their taxes in coin anymore. They have to pay their taxes in kind. Right? So what Diocletian does is he comes up with a new way to assess taxes, a system on the basis of two brand new units that are called capita and yuga. Right? And these are plural forms of nouns, caput and yugum. A caput is a head, and a yugum is a yoke, like for oxen. Right? So capita and yuga refer to heads and yokes, but what they are is, is measurements of wealth in this case. Right? What Diocletian says is, we'll assess taxes on the basis of people's ability to pay. Right? It, this is all axiomatic to us, right? but at the time it was revolutionary. Right? So capita, what were capita? Capita were ways of, uh, it was a unit that measured overall wealth in forms other than grain production. Right? So if I'm evaluating your ability to pay taxes based on grain production, like actually handing over the bushels of grain to the government, I'll measure that in yuga. Right? If I'm assessing anything else, whether it's your ability to pay in gold and silver or to pay by handing me pigs or barrels of wine or what have you, timber, anything, I'm going to use capita. Right? So these units were independent of the fluctuating and, and unstable value of Roman coinage. Right? So he creates these units, Diocletian does, and then begins a full census of the empire to decide you know, which regions can be counted on to provide what, right? So a place like Egypt, most of the taxes would be assessed in Yuga, because Egypt was one of the most fertile grain-producing regions in the entire Roman world, 
right? But if you're talking about an urban area, you'd use kapita. If you're talking about a place where they're paying in other forms other than grain, you'd use kapita, right? So it's a brilliant system, and what it does is it allows Diocletian and Maximian to create a budget, right? And having done so, then they can do all kinds of things. They can increase the size of the army by 60%, secure the empire's borders, try to suppress rebels for the first time in over 50 years. And they start doing all of these things, and they do them very successfully. They defeat the Persians. They defeat the Sarmatians. Right? They defeat the Quadi and other strange-sounding barbarian names. They defeat rebels within the empire. Right? And so we're seeing the beginnings of a reassertion of stability. They're able to restart the machinery of bureaucratic government, right? which had been stalled so horribly during the third century crisis. But it's not enough in Diocletian's mind. In Diocletian's mind, this, this reform is good and all. Right? It's, it's the beginning. But it's not going to cut it. What we need to do right, is have a wholesale renovation of the imperial office. Now think about what that means, right? For, third, for emperors in the third century crisis, why are they getting assassinated all the time? They're getting assassinated all the time because the emperor was a vulnerable and accessible figure. Third century crisis emperors tended to be soldiers, they tended to be career army officers with no dynastic background or pretensions whatsoever. They tended to be one of the guys, as far as the military was concerned. That's why one of their own officers would have no qualms about bumping them off and taking their place, right? It happened all the time in the third century crisis. So what Diocletian realizes is that there's a profound need to alter the imperial image in the minds of the people, in the minds of the army, in the minds of the elite, right? To create a completely new imperial ideology. And so that's what Diocletian does, right? So what he does is he has to renounce the old legal fictions that had sustained the Roman Empire up to this point. He has to renounce the idea that the Roman Emperor was the protector of the Republic. That was a legal fiction that had been maintained since the days of, of Augustus, since the very foundations of the Empire. The idea of the Emperor as protector of the Republic. This is something Diocletian realizes absolutely has to go. Right? Instead of the Roman Emperor as protector of the Republic, right? Diocletian proclaims, from now on, the Roman emperor will be treated as a god. Right. Now, the deification of deceased Roman emperors had, of course, been quite customary. What Diocletian does that's so revolutionary is the deification of living Roman emperors, <laughs> including himself. Now, this is accompanied by all sorts of reforms. This is accompanied by ceremonial reforms. This is accompanied by a whole new set of rules for what to do when you approach the emperor and all of that. This is accompanied by the, the deployment of, of the machinery of propaganda, right? including imperial statuary, you know, gigantic, larger-than-life statues of the emperors built throughout the empire. Uh, these are things that we have to understand because they're going to be maintained throughout late antiquity. They're going to be a big part of imperial ideology during Constantine's time as well. So here's what Diocletian does. He says, look, Maximian, you're a god, and I'm a god, right? People are going to have to ha follow a whole new set of rules when approaching us. There's going to be a whole new kind of imperial ideology that we promote and all of that. But just to, to kind of make this official and to solidify the existing division of the empire, what we'll do is we'll create artificial dynasties, right? These artificial dynasties will confirm this complete renovation of the image of the emperor and what he is. They'll confirm the division of the empire into two halves, and it'll help share our workload. So to create these artificial dynasties, let's each of us name 
in Ayr. Right? So the dynasty in the east, the dynasty with Diocletian as its head, becomes known as the Jovii. Right? Jovii means in Latin, those who are under the patronage of Jupiter. Right? Diocletian names as his successor in the east a fellow by the name of Galerius. In the west, right, of course, we have Maximian. And Maximian's dynasty uh, receives a very interesting name. The, the dynasty in the west is called the Herculii, of course, the Herculeans, those under the patronage of Hercules. Now, Hercules, of course, was a demigod and a son of Zeus. And so what the, the name of Herculei, what it does is it, it makes very clear who's, who's the senior guy here, right? The Jovius is definitely senior to the Herculeus, right? Now, he also names a successor in the West, and his successor's name was Constantius I. Constantius I, of course, would be the father of Constantine, right? Now, the naming of successors is a very important step in imperial Rome, right? They had titles to go along with the naming of successors. Of course, the highest imperial rank, dating back to the Battle of Actium, was the rank of Augustus, right? So Diocletian and Maximian take to themselves the rank of Augustus, while their heirs receive a, a slightly junior rank. What is, what is that rank? The rank Caesar, right? Caesar becomes the rank for these guys. So you have an Augustus in the east, an Augustus in the west, a Caesar in the east, a Caesar in the west, right? Now, all four of them are emperors, right? And so the system becomes known to historians as the tetrarchy, right? The rule of the four emperors. What's interesting about the system is that Diocletian is intent on dividing imperial responsibilities four ways, right? So each of these emperors has his own administration. Each of these emperors has his own, his own set of armies, his own set of uh, administrative bureaus, his own set of uh, messengers and bureaucrats and things like that. Each of these emperors has his own praetorian prefect, even. Right? So the empire is clearly divided up four ways, with responsibility distributed among four men. Now, what this does, right, what this does certainly is it reduces the importance of Rome as a capital city. Right? At this point, Rome is no longer a capital city in any real sense at all. Rome and Italy are reduced effectively to provincial status, right? And the same admin administrative structure is applied both to east and to west. So what, what's the new capital of the empire at this point? There really isn't one, right? Each of these four men would take up residence at a certain preferred place. For Maximian, it would be Milan. For Constantius, it would be Trier in Gaul. For Diocletian, it would be Nicomedia for the most part. And for Galerius, it, it varied. He was at, at, at one point in Syria. Later on, he, he ends up in Asia Minor, and Diocletian ends up in the Balkans. Right? So they, they move around quite a bit. Right? But that's a key point, because late antique emperors are mobile emperors. They have mobile administrations, mobile courts, etc. Right? So the, their capitals are really wherever they are. Now, what is the system designed to do? It's designed to do a variety of things. Aside from confirming the divinity of the emperors, aside from confirming the division of the empire into east and west, it's meant to ensure orderly succession. Right? That is one thing that it's going to fail to do. Right? <laughs> now, it's going to fail to do that for, for a variety of reasons. Now, um, you have to understand, Roman emperors, right, Roman emperors always seemed to want to start dynasties, 
right? And yet there are so few long dynasties in the history of Rome. The, the longest dynasty in all of Roman history was the last, the Paleologoi, emperors of Constantinople from 1261 to 1453. That was the longest dynasty in the entire history of, of Rome as an institution, right? Uh, so Diocletian, though, he, he seems to have been an exception to the rule, partly because he didn't have a son of his own. He had a daughter, but he had no son. And so what Diocletian said to Maximian was, hey, pal, let, let's do this. Um, let's name successors for our successors, and then let's retire, right? And so our successors can become the Augusti, and their successors can become the Caesars, and we can watch the whole system work. Right? We can make sure that it functions properly. And so in 305, having restored stability to the empire, having... Uh, enlarged the army tremendously, increased the size of the army by about 50 or 60 percent, having more than doubled the size of the civil service, having quadrupled the number of emperors, Diocletian says, my work is done in 305. It's time to retire. And so he retires, and he kind of twists Maximian's arm to get him to retire as well. Now, at this retirement ceremony in 305, obviously it's going to imply that Constantius and Galerius become Augusti right, in the west and the east, respectively. What it also means is that new heirs are going to have to be announced, and it's the names of the heirs that, that shock everyone and set off civil war, effectively, within the empire. Right? What happens is Diocletian announces that Constantius's heir here in the West is going to be some guy named Severus. Who the heck is that? Constantius has a perfectly good son named Constantine. What does this mean? Does this mean Constantine is being set aside? Yes. Right. What about Galerius? Who's his successor going to be? Well, it's announced that Galerius's successor will be a guy named Maximin. Now, Maximin, that's not the same as Maximian, so you have to keep their names straight. Uh, but who are these guys? Maximin and Severus. Who the heck are they? They have no connection to the guys who are retiring, really. The only person that they seem to have a family connection to is Galerius. And so the Christian historian Lactantius, later on, in his work on De Mortibus Persecutorum, he'll actually speculate that Galerius was responsible for the selection of these figures of Maximin and Severus. Right? What it means is that not only is Constantine, the son of Constantius, set aside, but Maximian, who's retiring, his son is also set aside. Maximian has a son named Maxentius. Sorry. I, I always have to apologize to my students for all the Maxes in this. Uh, but it's not my fault. Uh, Maximian has a son named Maxentius. He's also set aside. Right? So these two gentlemen are set aside in the succession in 305. Constantius becomes the, Caesar, the Augustus, that is, of the West, although he maintains his capital at Trier in Gaul. Severus becomes the Caesar, the junior emperor in the West, and moves to Italy. Galerius becomes the Augustus in the East and takes up residence at Nicomedia. And Maximin becomes the Caesar in the East and takes up residence in Syria. So... The succession is all set, right? It's all simple, except you have these two guys hanging out here, Constantine and Maxentius. Now, here's where things get really interesting for Constantine. You see, Constantine didn't live with his father when he was growing up. Now, why not? He lived in Nicomedia. He lived at Diocletian's court, which later became Galerius's court. There was a reason for this. Constantine was effectively raised as a diplomatic hostage in the East. Now, what's a diplomatic hostage? I mean, 
you guys are a mature audience. You know what a diplomatic hostage is. I always have trouble explaining this to my students. They think hostage and they think somebody in a bank with a gun to their head or something like that. No, it, it's obvious what a diplomatic hostage is, right? It doesn't mean that he was raised as a prisoner. It just means that he had to stay in Nicomedia to ensure the good behavior of his father. You see, none of the tetrarchs really trusted one another. They had very little reason to trust one another with the empire emerging from this period of instability, right? And so Constantine spending his childhood and young adulthood in Nicomedia made perfect sense, right? It ensured Constantius's loyalty to the tetrarchy, right? So Constantine is there in Nicomedia in 305, still living there as a diplomatic hostage when Galerius takes control as Augustus of the East. And Constantius in the West realizes that if he's going to pull off some kind of a coup d'etat that will allow his son to succeed him, he's going to have to act fast. Because by 305, Constantius's health was failing dramatically. All right. And so a plan was hatched, uh, which worked out kind of interestingly. One of the legends about what happened that night in 305 is, uh, is that Constantine approached Galerius, and, uh, and he somehow tempted Galerius into a drinking bout. Uh, now, you can imagine, it's, it's, it would be easy to do that. You go up to Galerius and say, hey, you know what, rumor has it that you drink like a woman. <laughs> See what Galerius says. I think you drink Smirnoff ice. <laughs> Galerius says, no, no, come on, I'll show, you, I'll show you how a man drinks. Yeah, go ahead, show me how a man drinks. <laughs> Galerius apparently showed Constantine how a man drinks, and then, uh, having done so, Galerius was persuaded to sign a permission, <laughs> giving Constantine um, the permission to leave and to take the, the postal system out of there. Right, now, the Roman postal system, of course, worked uh, very efficiently in late antiquity. The way the postal system worked, you had a stable full of horses every few miles. So you could get on a horse and ride like mad until you got to the next stable, and then get a fresh horse and ride like mad until you got to the next stable and get a fresh horse, etc. Uh, so what Constantine did was, when he had this, this permission that a drunken Galerius had signed, you know, <laughs> giving him permission to get the heck out of there, he does, right, he leaves the palace complex at Nicomedia, goes to a postal stable, you know, shows them the piece of paper, says, all right, give me a horse. He takes the fastest horse they have and cuts the back tendons on all the others so he can't be followed. Right. Making him the Michael Vick of his time. Uh, but <laughs> in any event, <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. He then takes off, rides like mad to the next stable. Again, selects the fastest horse, cuts the tendons on all the others, and takes off again. He does this all the way back to the west. Right? So Constantine, against all odds, escapes from Nicomedia, escapes to his father in Gaul, and he spent the next year or so with his father and his father's armies in Gaul and Britain. Right? Remember, Britain was a part of the Roman Empire at this point. Uh, and so this is, this is where he spent the majority of the following year, from 305 to 306. Of course, Constantine's escape just enrages Galerius when he woke up you know, from his hangover the following evening. It was too late to do anything about it. But in any event, Constantine in the West becomes... Uh, the army becomes familiar with him. All right? and Roman armies tended to be attached to the dynastic principle in, in interesting ways. And so what, what happens then is, is kind of funny. The, uh, the father, Constantius, was clearly ailing in 306. And the sources indicate that when he died, immediately Constantius's army proclaimed Constantine as Augustus. Not as Caesar but as Augustus of the West, as his father's direct successor. Right, now this is an interesting moment then in 306. This is the beginning of Constantine's imperial career. It's an interesting moment because, of course, Galerius is going to have a hard time stomaching this direct affront 
to the tetrarchal system. Constantine, upon his accession, he had a portrait of himself painted, a portrait of him in the regalia of Augustus, and he had the portrait sent to Galerius. Say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he FedExed it to Galerius. Now, <laughs> Galerius gets this portrait, takes it out, and was in such a rage, he wanted to burn it right away, but his advisors persuaded him, you can't do that. You, you basically have a choice here. You can either acknowledge Constantine as an emperor, as a, as a member of the tetrarchal club here, replacing his father, or you can have civil war in the empire. And that would be a disaster, right? especially so soon after the end of the crisis. Nobody wants a civil war. So what Galerius does is he, he takes a middle road. He sent imperial regalia to Constantine with a note saying, I, by my authority, make you an emperor. But he also made it very clear that he wasn't recognizing Constantine as an Augustus. It might seem like a minor point, Augustus versus a Caesar, but it was a point that mattered to these guys. And so he, he tells Constantine, no, you're the junior emperor of the West. You're the Caesar. Constantine always insisted on calling himself Augustus. So who is Constantine at this point? Well, it's, it's interesting to note. His, his upbringing in Nicomedia is kind of obscure. We know that he would have had certainly the best education possible. But it's hard to really draw firm conclusions about what his attitude toward Christianity would have been. And so we have to think to ourselves, what, what was the state of Christianity around the year 300? A lot of people have this idea that Christianity around the year 300 was a religion that, was, that had been practiced underground for three centuries. And that's not really true. That doesn't really capture it. The idea that Christians lived in tunnels for 300 years is not really true. In fact, persecution prior to Diocletian's time had always been local and intermittent. Right? Persecution had occurred on a very limited basis at certain times. It had tended to occur only in limited areas of the empire and for limited amounts of time. So Christians were a visible presence in the Roman Empire by around 300. They were certainly most visible in cities. Christianity was an urban phenomenon more than anything at this point. And they were much more numerous in the East than they were in the West. So Constantine certainly would have known what Christians were. He also would have witnessed persecution firsthand. Diocletian's persecution of the Christians had begun around 299. Apparently what happened was uh, they were engaged in some kind of exercise of divination where they were looking at the entrails of animals. And so Diocletian was looking at the entrails of the animals in 299, and he saw that the entrails didn't look right. I don't know what they look like when they look right, but, uh, but something didn't look right. And so he asked the priests, the, the Roman priests, what was wrong, and they blamed it on the Christians. So what Diocletian then did was he initiated uh, what he wanted, what he intended to be a systematic empire-wide persecution of Christianity. Christianity became officially proscribed. Uh, he went... The, the Christian church in Nicomedia. This just goes to show that Christians didn't live in tunnels. Uh, there was a, you know, a massive church in the center of town in Nicomedia that Diocletian had raised, or had it knocked to the ground. Uh, so it's, it's interesting. Diocletian's persecution occurs at a time when Constantine would have been there, and he would have seen what was going on. Right? Now, Tertullian and, and Lactantius and other ancient sources tell us that Diocletian's persecution did nothing to weaken Christianity in the empire. They tell us that, in fact, Diocletian's persecution, if anything, strengthened Christianity. Because the witness of the martyrs was such that it, it attracted a lot of sympathy for Christianity, and it even attracted converts right, at a time when Christianity was very much a minority faith. Around the year 300 or so, Christianity um, it wouldn't have been more than 5% of the Roman Empire, around 300 or so. Right? So the witness of the martyrs, apparently, was very effective. Constantine would have seen that witness as a young man. 
right? And when he escaped to the West in 305 and got to know his father, really, in some sense, for the first time, uh, it's interesting. He, um, his father, Constantius, was one of the most sympathetic emperors towards Christianity. Of all the original tetrarchs, Constantius was very, very sympathetic towards Christianity. So Constantine, we see, initially, perhaps, and there's some speculation involved here, but initially, perhaps, disposed to be sympathetic towards Christianity, right? Seeing the witness of the persecution, and then coming and being mentored by his father, who was, in many ways, friendly towards Christians, right? But as a, a, a putative Augustus, right, Constantine makes no attempt at the beginning to associate himself directly with Christianity. Uh, in fact, he, he liked to associate himself with the sun god. And as you know, if you know your mythology, the sun god was associated with Apollo. So why doesn't he like to, to associate himself with Hercules? Isn't he supposed to be a Herculeus? Yeah, but Constantine just didn't like, he didn't like being the junior guy very much. Right? And so the, the association with Hercules, that implies a certain sonship towards the Eastern dynasty which Constantine found distasteful. And so what he did in, the, in those first years as Augustus was he not only associated himself with the patronage of Apollo, the sun god, but he also tried to come up with um, sort of dubious dynastic connections to earlier Roman emperors. In other words, to, to try to make his claim independent from that of the tetrarchal system and Diocletian. So it's interesting, though. Uh, guess who's watching Constantine's accession to the throne with deep and profound interest? Severus certainly is, and who else? Maxentius, right? Maxentius, the other son who had been passed over. He's looking at it, he's saying, if Constantine can do it, so can I, right? And so almost immediately after Constantine was accepted as a member of the Tetrarchy, all hell breaks loose, right? Because Maxentius, with the support of his father, Maximian, rebels against Severus in Italy, right? Now, this is seriously problematic for Severus, because Severus's entire army immediately deserts him. Why? Just a year earlier, they had been serving under Maximian. They served under Maximian for 20 years. So, of course, they're going to be more loyal to Maximian and his son than to this upstart Severus. So they desert him right away. Right? Now, things get a little dicier, because it, you know, in, in 306 and 307, in that period, there's some kind of a falling out that occurs between Maximian and Maxentius. Uh, and so Maximian then, he tries to pull a Brett Favre and come out of retirement. And, uh, he, he bounces around you know, between his son's court and Constantine's court. and Things don't really go well for Maximian, but he wants to come out of retirement and be an Augustus. Uh, so it, 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 just, it creates this mess of a situation in the West where, uh, let us count the Augusti in the West. Uh, you have Maximian out of retirement claiming to be an Augustus again. He's dead. Uh, Severus claiming to be an Augustus, of course. Constantine claiming to be an Augustus. And Maxentius claiming to be an Augustus. So you have one, two, three, four Augusti in the West. What do we have in the East? You have Galerius and Maximin. Diocletian at this point is still retired. Right? So this is, this is a nightmare situation. And the only solution is a meeting. A meeting of emperors. So in 308, Diocletian comes off of his cabbage farm to host a meeting of tetrarchs at a Danube resort. Uh, resort towns in antiquity are kind of cool. You know, they, they, they didn't tend to be around beaches so much uh, because nobody knew how to swim, uh, surfing hadn't been brought to the Mediterranean yet, and there was no sunscreen. Uh, so 
you know, beaches weren't as popular. But hot springs were the ticket. Hot springs were the thing back then. I mean, think about it. Actually, heating water was such a, a luxury. Taking wood and lighting a fire and heating a pot of water, and then you bathe in it, and then you have to dump it out. It, 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 just, it just wasn't done that often. It was a real luxury. But if you have hot springs, ah, now, now you're in like Flint. You have natural hot water. So, uh, so they go to some hot spring town, some resort town on the Danube, to have a conference in 308. Uh, and who's there? We have Diocletian, Galerius, Maximian are there. Uh, Constantine was there. Severus was there. And it, it gets interesting uh, because what, what the conference decides is this. They decide, okay, Maximian, you're retired. Go back into retirement. Maxentius, you, you were never an emperor anyway, so you can go away. Um, Severus, you're fired. Um, Constantine, you can be a Caesar. But now we need a new Augustus for the West. So they pull some other guy out of nowhere, all right, a guy named Licinius, and they tell him, okay, you're the Augustus of the West. So have we solved anything here? No. Now, <laughs> instead of reducing the number of claimants, we've actually increased the number of claimants. So this is a nightmare. This is an absolute nightmare, especially because now Maximin, the only guy on this whole list who acknowledges that he's a Caesar, He's starting to get a little jealous because everybody else gets to be an Augustus, right? And so it really, it really turns into an absolute nightmare at this point. Now, the way it would be settled would be by a combination of death and war. Um, between, between 308 and 311, a bunch of people die. Maximian dies an unnatural death. He dies by kind of forced suicide. Diocletian dies a natural death. Galerius dies a natural death. Uh, and Severus is out of the picture. So we're left with a combination of Constantine, Licinius, Maxentius over here in the West, and, of course, Maximin. So by 311, let's say, to simplify things, by 311, we're left with four emperors. We're left with Maximin, Constantine, Licinius, and Maxentius. And you're supposed to have four emperors, right? But none of these guys trust each other, and half of them are usurpers. So this isn't going to settle anything. In fact, what ends up happening is they, they make alliances, two against two. Constantine and Licinius ally themselves with one another. Maxentius and Maximin ally themselves with one another. A series of wars are fought, right? and in the West, it comes down to a battle of Constantine versus Maxentius. Right? Now, the nature of Constantine's war with Maxentius is interesting. It took on distinctly religious overtones. Maxentius truly saw himself as the defender of the old gods, the defender of the old system, whereas Constantine, at this point, by some mysterious transformation, came to be seen as the champion of Christianity. Now, there are different, uh, different stories about how this occurred. There are different versions of this, this famous story of Constantine's conversion. Um, the, uh, the vision that he allegedly saw, right? uh, Eusebius of Caesarea talks about it. Uh, I think Lactantius has another version of the story in his history. Um, but supposedly, some version of this happened. Constantine saw a vision right, of a Christian symbol, and he may have seen it in the sun, which was the god that he tended to associate with anyway. Right? Now, the symbol that he probably saw was this. Right? The famous symbol, the, the monogram of Christ's name, the key row. Right? And so we know that this symbol occurs in, in some of Constantine's epigraphy and some of his, uh, some of his coins. Right? So this was probably the symbol that he saw in his vision. Right? So apparently what happened is 
This symbol was placed on the shields of Constantine's soldiers and on his banners, right? And bearing this Christian symbol, then, Constantine went to war with Maxentius. Now, the decisive battle was fought in 312 at the Milvian Bridge outside of Rome. And at this battle, Maxentius was defeated. His army pushed back into the Tiber. Maxentius himself was killed. His body was fished out of the Tiber the following day. Right. And then what happened was interesting. His body was paraded around Rome just to show everybody that Maxentius was dead. Right. Maxentius' head was then chopped off and put in a box. Okay. Now, what's the purpose of that? It's because you could send the box to different places in the empire <laughs> to convince them that Maxentius was dead. Right. But this is an interesting moment. We see that change is about to occur. Why? Because after his great victory, right, unlike all emperors before him, Constantine does not go to the Capitoline Hill to make sacrifices to Jupiter. He doesn't do what's expected of a pagan emperor. And that's how we know that change is in the air. And that's what we'll have to talk about next time. Thanks. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you very much. We're going to take a, uh, a quick break. Uh, did he consider himself a god? Constantine? Yeah. Uh, we, we kind of have to fudge that one for now. Uh, what we're going to see is we're going to see Constantine transform the image of the emperor from that of a god to that of uh, the imitation of God, uh, I think is how, what he's eventually going to say. So as the first Christian emperor, Constantine is going to benefit from Diocletian's renovation of the imperial image. He, uh, the whole God thing definitely works to his advantage. Uh, but y when you put it in Christian terms, it be it Constantine becomes the icon of God or the, the mimesis, the imitation of God. Uh, and um, yeah, something very much like God, but not quite, I think is what he would say. Just a simple question. How old was he when all this happened? Uh, that's a good question. Constantine was born sometime in the 280s, probably, but his, his birth is obscure. This is the problem. It's not even really clear the nature of Constantine's parents' relationship, uh, the nature of Constantius and, and St. Helena, Constantine's mother. The nature of their relationship is not entirely clear. We know that they didn't stay together, and uh, so whether St. Helena was... Um, uh, some kind of a concubine who later repented of, of her position or, or whether she was, uh, in fact, Constantius' wife who was cast aside. That aspect is, is very much unclear. But yeah, Constantine's death is, is sometime in the early 280s. I'm sorry, his birth is sometime in the early 280s. During the uh, third century crisis, how did the next emperor get determined other than public stabbing? Uh, generally, that was the best way. Yeah. <laughs> Public stabbing was generally the best way to go. Yeah. Where was the Pope at this time? Oh, the Pope is always in Rome. Uh, the the Pope, by definition, is is the Bishop of Rome, uh, and so of course the the Popes in Rome are they are they really in a position at this point in the history of the Church uh, to play a, as direct a role in administering the the Universal Church as they will try to play later? Uh, certainly not. No. At this point, the Popes are. Um, they're functioning sort of as a court of appeal, maybe, for, from, other, from disputes within other Christian dioceses. Uh, the popes are desperately trying to assert control over the region immediately around Rome in this period. Uh, do we know why the, the priests for Diocletian chose the Christians to blame for the, uh, the entrails not being read correctly? I, I think we have to say that their motives are a little bit obscure. Um, but I, I think it's pretty clear that what Diocletian is, is trying to do 
is he's trying to create an empire-wide cult which had never really existed before. I mean, if you think about it, paganism and religion in general in the empire prior to Diocletian's time, religion in general in the Roman world is a very local phenomenon, right? Uh, so it, it's not like there was a, some kind of a universal pagan church in the empire that was the official official pagan established church or what have you. Paganism was a v- very much a local thing that varied from place to place. Uh, and so Christianity is able to slip in there and establish itself, especially in cities which were very cosmopolitan, where you, you'd have other minority faiths, you'd have Jews, you'd have Persian immigrants, you'd have wh- whatever else going on there. And so Christianity is able to, to step into that, into that environment and exist. So what, what Constantine is trying to do with the initiation of, of a, a new kind of imperial cult, Christianity is going to suddenly be something that he stumbles upon because he, he's going to demand mandatory sacrifices and things like that. And the traditional exemption for Jews he'll maintain. Roman rulers have traditionally you know, maintained that, that exemption for Jews. Uh, but Christians he, he sees as just this strange new thing, uh, and he, he simply makes the decision, we have to mainstream them. Uh, into into the empire here and and have them fit in with this imperial cult and so the motives of the priests are kind of obscure they may have been they may have decided to say what they said because it was a prearranged thing with with Diocletian and and his imperial program uh, this deification of the living emperor uh, mm-hmm. this had been tried before had it around the time of Domitian in the first century uh, had this come and gone or was revived or what's the story there yeah, Domitian and people like him, Domitian, Caligula, fellows like that that we run into in Suetonius, those guys always tended to be highly unpopular with the senatorial aristocracy in Rome. And, and deifying themselves in their own lifetimes didn't really help them at that point because th- those guys were too much tied in with the Roman aristocracy and, and to a certain extent too dependent on, at least in theory, dependent on the Senate and the urban aristocracy of Rome. Uh, and so what, what, Constantine, oh, sorry, what Diocletian does is Diocletian really cuts ties with that tradition. He cuts ties with that whole history, uh, and he tries to establish the imperial office as being you know, totally independent of those older ties. So the, the, the deification of the emperor in the time of Domitian or something like that, it's, it's, it's sort of a failed experiment precisely because the Senate and the, and the aristocracy and that whole faction just doesn't like the emperors. And, and that's why the emperors come off looking so badly, say, in Suetonius's history or something like that. Given the Roman feelings about dynasty, did Constantine marry, have children? Was he that concerned? Sure, we'll, we'll talk uh, about this in detail um, next Tuesday, but Constantine had four sons with two women. Okay, So with, with Constantine's first wife, he had a son named Crispus. Uh, with his second wife, he had three sons, whose names were Constantine, Constantius, and Constans. Uh, so, sorry about that. You know, when, uh, it, it, was, it was the easiest way of like, identifying them as your sons at, the t- at a time when you don't really have a, a system of, of last names that, that works well uh, or is universally recognized. Uh, so they tended to give sons names like that. You know, if, if your name was Bill, you'd name your sons uh, Billy, Billo, and Billus or something like that. It's, it's, you know, it's, you know, so that's that's what he does. But uh, it's he does he does have four sons. His eldest son Crispus is going to be executed by Constantine himself uh, under strange circumstances. But we'll we'll talk about that next time. Thank you very much, Brennan. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, 
please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.